0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The word of the Lord.
1: Who is Jesus, and what did he come to do? Pretty basic questions, but what did Jesus come to do? One of the things that's often overlooked is Jesus came to form a community of people for himself. And when I say community, Don't think about it the way we tend to, which is a loose association of people who like the same thing, like fans of Liverpool Football Club, or excited followers of Olivia Rodrigo and the music that just came out by her, or you like to do swing dancing or play pickleball. Those are things you like and have associations with people who like the same sort of thing as you. But by first-century Jewish standards, a community meant deep covenantal commitment to one another. When it comes to Jesus' community, their bond together, their commitment together was built around a common confession that Jesus was the Messiah and God. Their common mission, to advance God's kingdom purposes in the world. And this implied actually not just a loose association but some sort of order and organization and authority to their community. In other words, from the very beginning, From the very beginning, Jesus was envisioning a church. Now, many of us don't trust the church. And some of us, some of you, for very good or sad reasons. But Jesus himself did believe in the church. And it's what he came to do to form a people for himself who'd carry on his kingdom purposes in the world. In Matthew 16, we see Jesus beginning to announce, to lay out his vision of the church. And what we get are three things, three things I want us to focus on. First, the confession that forms the church. Second, the authority that Jesus entrusts to his church. And third, the mission to which he calls his church. So first, the confession that forms the church that Jesus was calling to himself. We get this. I'm just going to give you the first verses that were just read over again, the first half of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus has taken his disciples. They've basically spent most of their time near the Sea of Galilee in a place called Capernaum. They've been in the Galilee area and then occasionally going down to Jerusalem. But now they've gone way up north to the bottom of a mountain to a city that was more Greco-Roman, a pagan city named Caesarea Philippi, and he's with the disciples up in that region. And he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, you know, some people think that you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead, or or kind of the uh, reincarnation of Elijah the prophet. You're kind of a great prophet and teacher. And then Jesus says, but what about you? And when he says that, he says you plural, (laughs) ustedis, yins, y'all, yous. Who do y'all say that I am? But it's also personal, right? This is the question of Christianity. It's the question that Christianity is asking of you. Who do you say Jesus is? It's the only answer that matters before you enter into anything else. It's the one we need to wrestle with our whole lives. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter, boldly as he normally does, acting on behalf of the crew of disciples, says, In verse 18, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's a bold claim. Jesus, you are the rightful king of Israel, is what he's saying. You're the one the entire Old Testament was looking forward to. You are the Savior to usher in God's reign in this world. You are God. You are Lord even though he didn't quite fully get what he meant when he said, you are the son of the living God at that point. This is the confession that makes or forms a community into a Christian church. And now this is hard. We have modern views of Jesus that are basically like this. If we went around and did a survey of people anywhere around America and said, what's your view of Jesus? Most of them would say, we heart Jesus, he's great, we like him, positive views of Jesus, much higher rating than any political candidates. He's he's way up there, people like Jesus. He's good and they're pretty sure he's important. But most people nowadays haven't read anything Jesus actually said or did. They're not actually sure anything really about him. And yet there's sort of some positive vibes of him So they don't really know what it is they're approving of or not. Many modern Christians, probably many of us, do what modern Americans do, which is we pick and choose the parts of Jesus we agree with or don't, and we emphasize the things we agree with most and ignore the things we don't agree with the most. And so if you come from, like, say, a more conservative or traditional leaning in your kind of makeup, you might say, I you know, Jesus talks a lot about adultery and, and faithfulness and marriage and the importance of marriage and sexual purity, and we might ignore the fact that he spends way more time talking about money, generosity, caring for the poor. And of course, if you're more liberal or progressive, you might flip that around. Well, Jesus talks about the poor a lot. I don't care about what he says about what I'm supposed to do with my body. The point is this, Jesus is offensive. If you really look at him, he's offensive. He offended everyone who ever met him. Well, let me put it a different way. He didn't offend everyone. Nobody was indifferent to Jesus. C.S. Lewis has written about this. Nobody who ever actually met Jesus thought, oh, he's kind of a good guy. They were either scared to death of him and tried to chase him out of their towns. They wanted to murder him or they fell down to worship him. Nobody who ever actually met Jesus was indifferent to him. He was offensive back then, and he's offensive today. Only today, we don't get as offended by the claim that he was Savior and God or Messiah and God. We're just like, oh, Messiah God, half the people that are, you know, kind of dictators claim they're Messiahs and God, right? Whatever. But what we get offended by, the modern ear gets offended by, is Jesus and the Christian claim that he is the only Messiah and God, the only Savior, the only way. But it's what Jesus himself said. In John 14, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through me. There is one road, one path, one way, and it's me. That's the common confession that Peter and then the disciples make, the common confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only Savior and Lord. And it's the foundation of any Christian church. And it's Christ Church Vienna's foundation, too, and always will be. We believe in Jesus, that he is Christ and God and the only way. That's why we talk about him every week. So this is the confession that forms the church. Second, I want us to look at the authority Jesus entrusts to his church. So we get this in these words, the next couple of verses, when Jesus says back to Peter in verse 17 through 19, and Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah or Simon Bar-John, Simon son of John, that's his birth name, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are now called Peter, which meant little rock. And on this rock, bigger word, I will build my church. And the gates of hell or of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven or shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed or shall have been loosed in heaven, verses 17 to 19. So, we start here with um, Jesus identifying Simon, saying, kind of, I'm giving you this new name. You're now going to be called Peter, Cephas Peter, which basically meant rock, little rock. And on this rock, bigger thing, I'm going to build my church. So, he's talking about a church. And that word church is, um, there's a Greek word, ekklesia, ecclesia, which meant an assembly. Of God's people. In the Old Testament, they, there was a kind of a Hebrew word for the same thing, which when the people gathered as, as the people of God to hear the word of God read or to go to the temple or before Mount Sinai, it was a ecclesia, but a different term, in a, a church, a gathering of God's people. Jesus clearly is forming a people for himself. A church is the word we use. And he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, rock in the Old Testament for a Jewish year, which Peter and all the disciples were Jewish, always was associated with God. Throughout the the Old Testament, God is the rock on which everything is founded. But here, Jesus is calling Peter his rock. And I think the best understanding of it is that he is, in this place, Jesus is saying, you are God's representative, or one of God's representatives, an ambassador. In the ancient world, a king would send an ambassador to another city or another nation, and that ambassador went with the full authority of the king so that if that ambassador signed any treaty, it was as if the king had signed the treaty. And if that other city decided to arrest and beat up that ambassador, they might as well be doing so to the king himself. So in a sense, he's saying, Peter, you are God's representative and I'm going to build my church on you and people like you. And then he says in verse 19, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys was like unlocking, opening the gates of a city, and they weren't little keys, they were big. It, was, it meant responsibility, authority. Throughout the ancient world, a key and being the key holder Meant that you were a person of great authority and responsibility in a city. You were a prime minister, a chief of staff, a second in command. According to Revelation 3, the keys of the kingdom are actually Jesus' keys. He's the one who enters and closes, he's the one who lets people into his kingdom. And he's saying to Peter, You, I'm entrusting these keys to you. And not just you, Peter, but the apostles, the church itself. But on one level, we have to realize this. Jesus is actually setting up Peter in some unique way as one of the earliest leaders of the earliest church. This is actually the whole Peter and the keys and the rock is one of the reasons why um, the Roman Catholic Church will go back to Peter and say that Peter, who became bishop in Rome, then appointed and anointed um, men who were presbyters or priests or elders who then became bishop and there was a bishop of Rome and that went all the way down from Peter to Pope Francis today. The Protestant church in the 1500s rejected that and said when Jesus was talking about the keys of the kingdom and the authority, he was actually talking about those who confessed Jesus is the Christ like Peter. Both are in there and you can't just get over the Peter thing because the easiest reading is to suggest there's something unique being called about Peter here. And yet, it does involve a confession that Jesus is the Christ. But there is some role that Peter plays, some unique role, and I think it's important to not overlook that as Protestants too quickly. Paul himself acknowledges Peter's role. In Galatians 2, when he talks about, I'd come to faith in Christ and then I started a missionary journeys to the uh, Gentiles, he said, but then I went back to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the church and and Peter in order to make sure that I had not run my race in vain, in order to make sure that my doctrine was right, that my mission was right, to basically get the approval of the church of which Peter was the head. Even Paul acknowledges, yeah, I wanted to go and make sure I wasn't just doing this on my own like some rogue Christian missionary. I wanted to be a part of what God was doing and recognize the authority and calling that he had placed on Peter and those early disciples. And in some senses, I want us to see this. This is... um, (laughs) not explicitly what's being said here, but the way it not only is being said by Jesus here, but the way it plays out in the New Testament and then in the centuries afterwards is that church polity matters. It's a weird word. It basically means the order and organization of the local and global church matters. Rightly ordained ministers matter. There's a stewardship and a trust And we're not meant to do Christianity on our own. We're meant to be a part of a body, the body of Christ, meant to be a part of a community, a covenant community formed in the image of Christ to which God entrusts carrying on his kingdom purposes. Churches have different ways of going about their church order, but I do think it somewhat matters. In Anglicanism, we have bishops, And presbyters, elders, priests, deacons, so it's kind of like the overseers, the teaching elders, the serving elders, all of which can be attested in the New Testament and basically from like the first century on. And there's sort of a mix in Anglicanism of both saying you must have confession that Jesus is the Christ, and we also trace ourselves back to Peter, the whole hands-on thing. But what's being said here? is that Peter and the church and those early leaders are being given an authority. There's an authority in the church that he talks about in loosing and binding. So let me just get into that and try not to get us bogged down in it. But he says, I give you the keys, this is verse 19, of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, for many years, I have overly, I've read this overly spiritual. So I'm going to under-spiritualize this because I think that's more accurate to the text. So the over-spiritual reading is that this is talking about how Christians have spiritual authority in in the realms of the demonic and that sort of thing, which we believe is actually true. There is a spiritual realm. But that's not what this is talking about. But it, and, and in part, it's a problem that we can then make some sort of claims that if I make a prayer that I sort of am kind of, it's like a magic incantation that is going to say, if I pray this in Jesus' name, it's going to kind of bind Satan or loose the, the, the angels of heaven. And you can maybe make an argument from that somewhere else, but not from this passage in particular. This passage is actually talking, talking about doctrine we're teaching, Christian teaching, and practice. That's what all the commentators agree. The New Living Translation, another translation, doesn't use the word bind and loose. It uses the word forbid and permit. What the church or what you forbid, say this is not okay, and what you permit, this is okay, has kind of God behind it or God already kind of knew this was happening. And we get this also from Matthew 18, which we didn't read, but it's two chapters later. In Matthew 18, it's, it's sometimes taken way out of context and used in abusive ways within certain church contexts, but it's about confronting a brother who sins against you. And then it goes on to say, truly I say to you, the, almost the exact same words, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say To you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So I had always understood this as talking about prayer. When two or three of us gather in prayer, we can bind and loose heaven, but that's not the context. The context is church discipline. It's about confronting somebody who's in sin and saying, hey, we want you to return. And if they don't, you kind of say, okay, we need to convert them not give them leadership roles. And it's basically saying that the church, rightly ordered, gathered, submitted to God, confessing Christ, the church has authority in matters of doctrine and teaching and practice and life. And I think that a lot of us have an internal reaction to that that's not that far off from right sometimes, which is, this sort of stuff has been used, um, a lot of abuse and horrible stuff has been done in the name of the church based on some sort of sense that there's a spiritual authority there. And that is right. And to the extent that that is your experience, I, that is evil. Um, to misuse a calling or a position or a church to manipulate, control people is evil an unrepentant misuse of that spiritual authority is grotesquely evil. But I think many of us also who haven't had that experience get hesitant by saying something like the church has some sort of spiritual authority that God is giving because we're Americans and you're not the boss of me. And the only authority that we respect nowadays is my own heart what I want, what I think, what I feel. And Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm giving you authority, the, the church authority in matters of teaching and doctrine, a spiritual authority. And look, you know, if you come from kind of a evangelical background, we kind of have a very high view of the Bible. And so here's my, my question that was like this, is how do we know anything about Jesus? How do you know anything about Jesus? It's actually the Bible. The New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, to Revelation, as attested in the Old Testament, pointing to the New. And how do we get the Bible? The church. It's actually the church leaders, bishops, over decades discerning that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John should be in there, but not the Gospel of Thomas. And if you want to go read the Gospel of Thomas, go ahead, but you'll see it doesn't align. But we entrust that the church has delivered to us a scripture that we can then meet Jesus. So you're, if you're an evangelical who says I don't need the church, I just need my Bible, well, without the church you wouldn't have your Bible. And as Christians and Anglican Christians, we actually read the Bible in conjunction with one another. What we're doing right now is me teaching the Bible and you guys holding me accountable, so that if what I'm saying is heretical or off, you guys are like, Yeah, this is off and wrong. Get him out of here. And that is the way we should be. Not in that. Maybe don't do that at least not today. But there's a role that we play in reading Scripture together and understanding it not just by me, by myself, but within the context of a small group or a church and the church global, bigger than us. How are they reading it in Nigeria? How are they reading it in Asia? How are they reading it in South America? And historic, how are they reading it 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago? And it's part of my own reason why I, have, I actually became an Anglican minister because I recognized that if I was just an independent Bible church type person, I could easily be a mini dictator pope of my own church. And my own internal selfish need to be approved of or to be in power could have easily lent itself that way. I still have those leanings, but a church with a polity that's broader than me helps to hold that in, in context and in, you know, hold it in tension. And it was also the recognition that there's a global and historic nature to our faith. And that anything that God is moving in, He is going to do in and through His church. God's plan to push against the kingdom of darkness and to advance His kingdom of light is faithful local churches. To them, He has granted an authority and a calling as a part of the global bigger historic church. The authority of the church also leads us to our last one, the mission of the church, to which Jesus calls his community. In verse 18, it says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The it is the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Again, another one that I've read slightly wrong. So one thing to remember is walled cities were highly important in the ancient world, Greco-Roman world, Babylonian world, Jewish world, Hebrew world. Walled cities were the place that you survived being attacked by neighbor groups. And the walled city would have had gates, two to eight gates. The gates were the weak point. If you were going to attack a city, you attacked through the gate. It was the primary place that you could attack it. Solomon, these Solomonic gates were these uh, eight chambers that went all the way through as these built in ways of kind of going through gate after gate, which you could then be attacked as you tried to enter. So you tried to make very defensive and strong gates. The gates of a city were the place that not only defended you, but it was actually where commerce came in. So it was the place of abundance and flourishing. It was also where justice was administered at the city gates, it's where people entered in and found refuge and it was also where you kept out the baddies. But what's interesting is, if you, uh, as I've, I've heard it said, that if you read ancient writings about wars that happened, if you as, as a nation or as a people went to attack another city and you were defeated, your, your historical annals wouldn't say, we went to attack Jerusalem and we lost, or we went to attack Jerusalem and the army of Israel defeated us. But what your wording would say in your histories was, The gates of Jerusalem were victorious over us. The gates of Jerusalem prevailed against us. We tried to attack, but the gates prevailed against us. So when Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, who's doing the attacking? I'd always read this as, or for years i read this as, Satan can attack us all he wants, but but we're going to survive. The church will make it to the end because Jesus wins. And this is true, but it's not what's being said right here. The gates of Hades, the gates of hell, the gates of the dead, the realm of Satan is the gates, it's, it's their gates. And the church is on the offensive. The church is attacking the city and dwelling place of Satan. And this makes even more sense when you read the context of where Jesus is saying this. This is in verse 13. He says they were in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a Gentile place. No good Jewish person would go there. It was, um, it was basically the Las Vegas of the ancient world or one of the Las Vegases of the ancient world. Lots of bad stuff was happening in Caesarea Philippi. It's well attested. It was also a pagan center like of, of worship. There was, uh, they were at the foot of a mountain that had a cave in it that was known as the place in which people would come and offer worship and sacrifices at this mouth of this cave because they believed it to be the gate to the realm of the dead, the gates of hell. Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is saying, you're going to attack with the good news of Jesus Christ places like the Las Vegas of the first century and they're not gonna win. Those gates aren't gonna hold you back. Jesus is calling his church to attack places of darkness and despair and evil in this world. Not to build bigger walls to keep people out, but a better offense. To be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness for the lost and the needy with the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the way, to life eternal. So how might we do this together as Jesus Church, this local iteration of Jesus Church, Christ Church Vienna? Three things, and then we're going to kind of end on this. Three areas that I think are places where there is darkness, despair, and these are gates we need to attack. One is recognizing that there is a hopelessness and despair and need in the next generations. In all the wording on de-churching, people age 18 to 30 have de-churched, left church, left Christianity, at greater rates than any generation before, even at the same ages. Today, um, 60%, 60%, three out of five of people 45 and older Believe in God with no doubts. Regardless of your faith, they say, I believe in God with no doubts. 60% of those 45 and over, but only one in three teenagers and young adults believe the same thing. 30% of 18 to 35 year olds have no religious affiliation, a greater number percentage than any generation before at the same ages. And there's extreme despair. 40% of Gen Z, which would be basically like 12 to 25-year-olds, 40%, two out of five, are dealing with severe and clinical depression and hopelessness. You could see it on the walls of a public school like this. There are mental health messages, encouragements, practices that a good therapist would give you everywhere. They see it too. This is one of the places I believe that Church Vienna is called. With our resources, our time, our missional focus, it's middle school, it's high school, university students, a generation that is despairing and hopeless, abandoning God but not finding something else, looking inside, looking outside, turning, but to what? And this calls us, especially if you're older, calls us to be humble and not hypocrites. The good thing about every teenage generation is they smell hypocrisy. So if you're a parent or an adult, and you're adamant, and you stand firm, and you're very strong, and you're a jerk, they will see it. And if you can't have humility and recognize that there's good arguments on both sides of lots of things, they will see that as well. What they need, what we all need, is safety, to feel like there's a place that's safe and secure. They need time, and they need Jesus like we all do. Safety plus time plus the gospel is powerful. So one of the first gates that I believe that we are called to over the next decade is the next generation. A second is to embrace difference. A second is to embrace difference. You know, the we are so divided as a culture politically, socioeconomically, by education, by race, by language. And yet, I can remember, okay, somebody that I really respected and loved, years ago, he died when I was about 25, was my grandfather on my dad's side. Grandpap, I called him. Grandpap and I had not much in common. He worked in coal mines. I don't like to get dirty. (laughs) I have multiple... Multiple, some maybe even useless, college degrees. He finished seventh grade. And yet, I loved spending time with him. Loved and respected him and knew him and wanted to be with him as much as I could. Today, we don't do that. Education is one of the primary ways we separate ourselves. We are angry at, fearful of, disdain people who are at different education levels or have different politics than us or whose language we don't speak who look different than us. Satan wants to keep us divided and in fear of the other. He wants us to keep us alone because by ourselves we're much weaker. And yet I believe that Christ Church Vienna is called into that difference. To not lead with politics, even when we're talking to people, not just seek those just like us or in the same stage of life, have conversations with people who don't look like you. Maybe don't speak your language. And that's hard. To be multicultural or multilingual, multi political church is really hard and it's going to cost you. It's, it's exhausting, it's tiresome, and Satan hates it, so let's do it. By focusing on Jesus as the Christ and looking at others with those same eyes. Lastly, presence. Next generation, difference, and presence is something I believe God is calling us to. You know, Vienna is regularly considered one of the best places in the world to live or something like that. And yet, even though it's safe and has great schools and and great programs and great, you know, kids stuff and everything, it is a place that is lost, a place of darkness and despair because it is a place just like every other city or town in America or the world that serves other gods. Here we serve money, An achievement, we worship at our kids' feet. We're called to break down the wall between the sacred and the secular, to bring the presence of Christ into the secular with the sacred goodness of who Jesus is as the light in a dark world, to be a counterculture within the culture. And one of the ways I believe that God is calling us to do that is through permanent presence through being here and not going anywhere years from now so that the people around us see we're here, that we're not going, and then we're going to keep pointing them to Jesus. This is not meant to be triumphalist or like kind of rah-rah because here's the thing we have to remember. Right after all of this, after Jesus says, hey, you're Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. You're the gates of hell. You're going to storm them. Jesus then says, and I'm going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. And Peter says, no, no, if that's the way, let's not go that way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter goes in one moment from being the rock to being the embodiment of Satan. Jesus then goes on to say, whoever wants to lose his life, that's the person who will find it. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus became a king by suffering and dying. We will become the church that God called us to be by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're not calling us to be superheroes. You are calling us to be your church. Not calling us to do this alone, but together. To recognize that you've called us into community, into a covenantal community that confesses you as Christ, who leans on your power and truth, and carries on your mission in this world. May it be through Christ and not through us. In whose name we pray.
2: Amen. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken for by myself. Son-